Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Matteo Molo, importer, retailer in the Boston, Massachusetts market, joins us today to talk about his Selection Natural import business and also the wine bottega in the north end of Boston. So you grew up in Connecticut? Yep. And uh, what were you doing out there in terms of your studies? Yeah, I grew up in Connecticut, um, basically through high school, um, and then went up to college after that into Vermont. And uh, was going to, into biology, actually. Oh, all right. Really loved the sciences. Kind of grew up around uh, marine biology um, down in the Cape uh, on and off during the summers. And um, had a lot of enjoyment in the, in the kind of science world. So I was studying up there and uh, getting into a lot of plant science. Um, plant physiology at the end was something I really focused on. Loved nature. Vermont was a great spot for that. But... Um, See, after that, I turned into a guy that really didn't want to be in a lab for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, outdoors was more your thing. Outdoors was my thing. I was more into the ecology side, not the microbiology side. Um, after that, I settled in. I graduated, realized I didn't necessarily want to go off into, you know, the lab world, the doctorate world, and found myself in Boston, um, which was a place I always wanted to spend time after college. Um, I thought it would be a good city balance. You know, I'm not really a, a real city guy, nor am I uh, a guy that wants to be totally isolated in the rural world. So It's a small, big city. It's a small, big city, you know, and um, a New England guy, so it felt right. And um, yeah, I went there, took a job in an office that I had very little um, qualifications for, but got a great job, um, learned quickly this computer science world, and that just got me started. Um, but I knew that after some time in the office that I wouldn't be, this couldn't be what I did for a long time. You weren't going to be a nine to fiver. I couldn't do it. You know, I did it for two years or so. And yeah, getting on the T, like dragging myself around. You know, I liked the the nine to five kind of hours of the day in some ways, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I I couldn't do it. You know, I felt myself just not being happy. And I followed a dream, which was to go off and, and ride my bike a lot in Europe. Because you and, have been doing some cycling. Yeah, I've been a competitive cyclist uh, since I was maybe 12 years old, 13. Um, raced in college, uh, got up to a pretty high level, and um, 
at one point totally burned out of that, but always was a cyclist. You know, my family, we have a bike shop and uh, that's like the family business. So it brought me into that world, but I always wanted to go to Europe. I had spent some time living there during college um, in Umbria and brought my bike, you know, did some racing in, in Europe. And after my, after the work in the office, I was like, you know, I really want to find something that I can get myself over to Europe, um, do some biking, found this great little tour company based in Somerville and took a chance, did it, you know, you know, left my then fiance or not quite yet fiance, but about to be fiance for a year, you know, and went over there and, you know, we, uh, I, I spent a lot of time on the road and that was really cool because it was very wine oriented. And where were you based? I lived, my stuff, I should say, the way I think about it is I lived in Bone mm -hmm. um, or just outside of Bone. And um, that was where my stuff was. But 90% of my time was in, in Tuscany and Umbria. And um, I did all these tours based on going to small producers. You know, these, these old guys that um, we'd bring these small groups of eight or 10, mostly Americans, some Canadians, around to their little cantinas and... Um, them to cool neighborhood local restaurants and it was um it's a great experience you know in i spent a lot of time in burgundy on my downtime when i had two or three weeks off i'd go back up to burgundy that's where my stuff was rode my bike hung out with the other tour guides who were coming back from all these places in in france and bringing bottles of wine and so we would just hang out and drink wine and um i kind of organically was getting into wine not really knowing it you know i was here surrounded by Burgundy vineyards, Tuscan vineyards kind of sound all great, but I kind of didn't really know what was going on. I just really liked the relationship I was getting with out of the, the winemakers and people I was hanging out with. So it wasn't so much that you approached it from like a book angle of being like, hey, that's a famous estate over there. You're just kind of yeah. rolling, literally rolling through literally the neighborhoods. Through. You know, I knew they were important because it was my job to also you know, explain some of these things to folks. Like, so I, I got into them enough to be dangerous, you know, but at the same time on, you know, I just like roll up and roll, rest my bike up next to the domain to the Romy Conti like vineyard and not even really think about it. And then only be like, oh yeah, that's important. But it wasn't until years later than I was in the wine world. I was like, oh, that's really important. You know, so it was kind of like that. And the people I was hanging out with were vignerons, you know, small scale producers. They were the people that I uh, became friends with. So you're, you're starting to hang out with those guys and, and have dinner and just... We'd just go to the apartment, cook. They'd bring a bottle of wine from their cellar. I'd bring a bottle of wine from my travels, you know, and um, we'd open up a few bottles of wine and just like talk about them and, and see how it all put together, you know, but in a really, it wasn't really stepwise or book wise. It was more like, you know, let's drink a lot of seven of the bone wines. But these aren't like aristocratic dudes. These no, are no. vineyard these workers. These are totally vineyard workers. States. You know, 25, 30 year old young vigneron in, uh, in Seven of the Bone or, um, you know, in some offshoot small town in Burgundy. Or not that I would get to hang out that, with them a lot, but these, these really great, like, old fashioned Italian producers in Italy that were like, you know, big sweater wearing guys that just tinker in their cellar all night. Um, those are the guys I was really inspired by. And, I basically, you know, that job ran its course. Um, so not a job you make a lot of money in, but it was also real, to me, it was really important because it let me see, oh, there's more in this wine world than just kind of drinking it with dinner and, and letting it go by and that's it, you know. Um, I, thought it, I thought it was really important that I had that chance to, to go and do it and then come back. And from there, I was 
somehow in the wine world, but not yet really into it. And, and what were you doing when you got back to Boston? Yeah. So I was looking for a job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I wasn't, I knew I wasn't looking for a job in an office again. That was what I learned, you know, and I have always had some Italian language skills. You know, I've, I studied in college on the side, studied there in, uh, in Italy during the, uh, my time abroad um, and obviously worked there. And so I had accumulated a couple good years and some really good Italian language skills. So I, um, I actually started by working in a small tour company, a small, slightly different than the bike company, but a tour agency where my job was like to call hotels and book places and stuff like that. And that to me was an outlet for my language. And then I stumbled really looking for a bottle of, specifically looking for a bottle of wine from Umbria. And I had passed by this shop probably a few times. And it was like a late kind of dreary December day kind of. Just was like, oh, what's that all about? Popped in the door. Hey, do you have a bottle of Sagrantino? And for the first time, because I had asked half a dozen places more, First time someone goes, oh, Sagrantino. Yeah, sure, we've got, we've got that. We've got these three options here, like this $20 Rosso, this Sagrantino here, and like we've got something else downstairs. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And the guy kind of gave me a double look too, because like, who comes in, who the hell's looking for Sagrantino? Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. I have all these Sagrantinos, no one's looking for Sagrantino. Six years ago, I guess now, five years ago. And from there, I was just taken right into that shop. You know, it was that moment he was, we were talking, it was the right time of year. And um, yeah, from, from there he was like, yeah, why don't you, uh, why don't you come aboard a little bit? And this is the wine bottega. This is the wine bottega. In the north end of Boston. This is the north, but yeah, exactly. And you work there still today. Yeah. Yeah. I've, um, I guess that was going on six years, over five years now ago. Um, and the wine bottega has been really important. It's really been the, the only place in some place, in some ways that I've had a wine trade experience in the retail, but it's a really special spot, I think. Um, and yeah, they took, it took me basically from, from zero to talking to Levy Dolan. And what did that career progression, as terrible as that last ending sounded, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, what did that career progression kind of look like in terms of what was the shop changing at that time? How was yeah. the shop uh, altering? It was evolving for sure. The shop had, uh, the wine bottega started I think in 2000, 2001, right around there. And um, obviously I wasn't a part of it since the beginning. And from what I know of it before I came there, um, it was always a cool spot that had some interesting wines. You know, they mixed in stuff that the guys that were running it were clearly a bit passionate about. and But also it was intermixed with some, not mainstream brands, but like some off brands kind of stuff, some New Zealand South Blanc, stuff like that. Because the north end of Boston is a heavy tourist area. Super touristy. And they were, uh, in many ways, uh, a neighborhood wine shop and, and focused on being a neighborhood wine shop, which was great. And today, that, that's a major part of what we do still. Because there's a strong neighborhood vibe. Very in strong neighborhood vibe, like to the point where they can be um, overbearingly so. You know, um, but, but our neighborhood customers are really important for us. And um, they're the most fun. We interact with them all the time. And, um, but I think that things took a really great kind of turn. Um, Carrie Platt, she's the other owner of the shop. Mm -hmm. She purchased it, um, 2008, late 2008. And her and I basically, um, I was thinking about this earlier. I was like, her and I didn't really sit down and say, this is what we want to do. It started to be more like, 
I was getting really into these small production natural wines and we kind of saw a, a, a divide in front of us. And I think I was really heavy in the buying mode there and really on the, you know, kind of trail for looking for great new wines. And we just started going down this path where it's like, if we're going to draw a line, we have to draw a line barely deep, stand on the other side and not go back. And what did you see that divide to be? It, I think to me, the thing that it was really important was not being a shop that had to be everything to all people. I see. Um, cutting out the stuff that we had that just felt like it was there maybe to pay the bills. And that was that's a hard thing to do when you're just starting business in 2008, nine, and like, you know, it's a rough economy. But it also, it was shedding some of that stuff that was on the sides, the stacks. We renovated the, Carrie renovated the shop a, a good amount, cleaned it up, you know, made it made it feel like something bigger could be, be, on, be in that shop besides just four walls in a neighborhood shop with six cool bottles of wine intermixed with, you know, dozens of others that are meh. And so that line, we drew that line hard. And because that was, it is a yeah, small shop. It's really small. So it's not like you could have everything anyway. We can't have anything. So ever. you kind of had to pick where we're going to have the more recognizable names or we're going to have the more adventurous stuff. Totally. And That's exactly what we thought. Right about the time that more adventurous stuff is kind of moving itself into Massachusetts. Yeah. And I felt that, I felt that one of the most important roles, I kind of took on this thing personally. I said, I, if we want this wine bottega to be great, what we have to do, what I have to do is to create it into being a spot that is pushing the Boston wine market in a direction that's out in front, that is forward thinking, um, pays attention to its customer base, doesn't go way over across the line and, and push people away, but at the same time make a statement in the sense that, um, you know, we're here, we're drawing these lines. I had some really great mentors and, and people that helped me do that. You Who know? are some of those people? Guys like Roy Goldstein. Oh, from Martin Eddy? Yeah. I like that guy um, a lot. He's a great guy. And he kind of brought you through on the Dresner portfolio? Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly his, it. His thing. Me and him saw eye to eye from day one, you know, and it was another mentor, the guy that originally hired me at the shop, Kevin Cassidy, who was working at the shop and now is still in the Boston wine trade. Um, he, you know, I remember distinctly one of the things he said, like near the end of his tenure at the shop, he was like, you know, listen to Roy. He knows what he's doing. And, uh, you know, I, I did. And um, Roy taught me a lot about tasting these wines. We'd come down to the Dresdner tastings together. Um, he was always big on education. He was big on education. We had a palate that lined up a lot. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. um, and also he was a guy that went out of his way to really, if I was nagging about some special wine I really wanted to get, he made it happen. Because uh, in Boston, as I recall, uh, the entire Dresdner portfolio wasn't available. You kind of exactly. have to pick and ask them to bring in things and yeah. then they bring it in for you if you commit to taking it. Yeah, it's true. You have to take a stance on a lot of things. And um, I guess it was during, I think those things were going hand in hand. We were drawing a line. The tastings at the shop were getting very focused. Um, we were starting to network with smaller importers. You know, we got to know the Dresner guys really well. Thanks to Roy. Thanks to a lot of personal relationships with Kevin, even Joe. You know, Joe eventually, a couple of years later, ended up coming up to the taste, up to the shop and this doing a big Joe tasting. Dresner. Yeah, Joe Dresner. 
And so because you so, kind of yeah. had to buy like larger drops because they weren't going to just bring in one case all the yeah, way across yeah, state lines always, for you. Right, right. You had to make the commitment to selling yeah. that many cases yeah. that you had yeah, brought you in special. Yeah, you got to get excited about it. And you got you got to be bringing it in for a reason. You know, they're they're not it's not like you're you're not dropping small amounts of money to do this. You have to go if I'm going to fill my shelves with this stuff, I'm going to bring it in and I'm I'm really going to get behind it and work it and show and and it was really great, you know, to see our customer base take it in. You know, because they slowly were going, wow, something else is happening here. Um, these wines are not only nowhere around, you know, the neighborhood, they're nowhere around Boston. And hey, actually, they're like probably not very many places other in New England. You know what I mean? We became this spot that from a neighborhood wine shop, we started getting people crossing town, you know, becoming a little destination spot. Our Friday tastings are always well received, I think. Um, it's a big, important day for us to like showcase the themes and the wines that we're really excited about. And um, so, uh, yeah. right about that time when people are like, hey, I'm, I'm tired of drinking the wines that have been built up by critics. I, I'd want to find things on my own. Oh, yeah. You guys were starting to offer things that were different for the market. Right. Maybe you had some models that you'd seen in New York retail sure. that oh, yeah, had worked in yeah. that way. Yeah. But you started to kind of make the commitment to say, hey, we can introduce this to our our state, yeah, our, yeah. at least our town. Our market, yeah. And uh, what were some of the techniques that worked for you to do that? And what didn't you do when you decided to make that play? Yeah, I mean, I definitely always, um, I had gotten introduced to two chambers um, by a couple of friends. You Chamber know, Street and Chamber Tribeca. Chamber Street down Tribeca. And um, got to meet, you know, a couple of the folks that worked there and uh, and Jamie and and basically um, saw that what what they were what their model was all about was very much something that I had in the back of my mind could be you know great you know we couldn't exactly do it you know New York's a really special place Chambers is a really special place in that way but I felt that um, one of the things that I would do is to bring the wines in what I didn't try to do was just blast lots of emails out I tried to be focused on the story of each producer. Say, this is why this wine is important to me and this is why I chose it rather than that. And that to me has turned into a formula. Well, when you when you stand there and talk to someone about a wine and you show them you're really interested in it and then you open it on a Friday and you pour six different wines that are focused on, you know, the Loire, um, I've, I said, this is really, this is starting to work. And I tried not, you know, the shop never had point scores and stuff like that. That was something we were well beyond, even when, you know, we were changing the shop into a really hardcore shop. Um, but, uh, but definitely the, the level of um, communication, the storytelling that we wanted to have with our And you our felt customers. like people were ready to try some new grape varieties they maybe hadn't seen before. Absolutely. I think so. You know, Pinot d'Anis um, became a big thing. I filled the shop because I love Gamay. Um, I filled the shop up with Gamay. I still do. You know, people make fun of me all the time. But right about the time that Burgundy is getting more expensive, you're offering people a it's all hand in hand alternative yeah. Burgundy that's Absolutely. less expensive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we tried to like, you know, I always thought we were out there trying to push the level. We were never doing it. Um, we, we were trying to do it pretty subtly and, and kind of um, simply. and Not in your face. Not in your face. Yeah. More I'm like not, the friendly... Yeah, I would rather let Friendly people kind French. of discover us and, and yeah, exactly. And not be like, you know, we're super cool and we're doing this kind of stuff. Let it happen. 
Because I feel like that is a usually a recipe for disaster in Boston. I think it can be. You if know you're what I mean? Like, hey, we're the coolest new thing in Boston because we're influenced by New York. Yeah, that's usually like an R.I.P. on your tombstone. I think so too, and um, I think that it really took quite. I don't know what a lot of people maybe thought of us outside of the sphere of the bodega. I don't know what a lot of people maybe think of us on, in the Boston world, but um, certainly the people that I interact with on a daily basis, the sales reps that know the shop, that have been long-term friends of the shop in a way, um, they see that it's they see that it's something a little bit different. You know, where maybe there's little nods to places like Chambers or Uva or whatever, but it's it's um it's still very much like a, a Boston place, I think. Um, which makes it fun. Because you feel like the community in general supports its own. I do. I think it does. And I also think that um, it's there's that little bit of New England reserve in everyone where you can't just come in and, and push people into it and say, like you like you were saying, like, I'm, I'm a big deal. Like, come see me. Um, I, I wouldn't want to do that. I'd rather just put it on the table and let people follow. You know what I mean? And now I'm seeing it starting to happen too. Speaking of that, did you start to see more interest on the restaurant side? Were you starting to see some of these same wines being picked up on lists around town? It did. It started to happen slowly. And um, I think it's actually happening more so now, maybe a couple of years later, after we were really hammering home the idea of bringing in these wines from afar. Um, not only that, I think that in general, the that world has expanded. You know, we're talking about at the producer level. At the producer importer level. You know, even even five years ago, even though the Dresden portfolio was deep and well selected, the quantities even with upstart producers like La Maison and things were there was not enough to go around still. So we were really down on the ground getting two, three cases at a time. When you when were fighting was, for we're it. Fighting for it. When that now, book was smaller. Now now they bring in sellable quantities of wine you know, to the market. And in a way they need to find things beyond New York because yeah. they have more than New York in support now. Totally. In terms of producers and volume. Exactly. Until and 2012. Until 2012. When you're screwed and you better start cozying up to the big brands. There's no wine. Yeah, there's no wine. There's no wine in France. It's all going to stay there. And uh, <clears throat> so at some point you decided to take those skills that you developed on the retail side and which you continue to use to this day and yeah. you uh, developed your own import. Yeah. And how did that come around? It's funny because I think that I knew from the beginning, even though I, when I first stepped into the wine bottega, I didn't know I was going to be a lifer. Mm -hmm. um, I stepped in and, and behind me coming into the wine world, I always had this background thought of, you know, one day those guys that I met and hang out with in Italy and Burgundy that no one knows about, I want to go bring their wines to the US. Even if it, and I had no idea how the wine world worked at all. I just thought, I want to share that story again. And it took a long time. You know, I mean, uh, I first had to learn the wine business um, a little bit to see how it worked. It took a little bit in terms of figuring out how that all worked. And then finally, you know, putting a business together this day and age, it's not easy. Uh, it took some background, but... Um, what was that like in the Massachusetts area? Because we talked to a lot of New York importers, yeah. but I mean, what, are the, what is the reality of becoming a new importer in Mass? For me, I think it's really great because um, not only I have a really great relationship with not only some people that surround me at the Bottega, but I feel like I have a, there's a great little community of people that are like-minded in the, in the Boston world. It can be small and sometimes clicky, but it's hopefully um, not always just about that. It's about building a community that's stronger rather than, you know, everyone doing their own thing with their heads down, you know? Um, 
So to start the company in Massachusetts is great. And, you know, I also sell my wines in New York and I'm also selling them now up in Vermont and going to be on the West Coast soon enough. So it's, and it's going to be small and focused across the way, but being, having my headquarters, kind of having my hit pivoting around Boston has been really good. You feel um, like there's kind of less sharks on the water yeah, in terms of smaller sure. producer importers? Sure. I, I totally, yeah. I mean, a lot of the smaller importer distributors that start generally start on premises of um, gathering lots of portfolios, um, bringing in just cheap bangers that they can like- Unload at retail. Unload. Um, and I feel like those are the conventions that I went completely against. I said, I want to start with a very small curated selection of uh, Italian wines. I really only want to stay in the Italian world. That's where I'm comfortable. Um, but it's also where my kind of number one passion for wine is. And so in in Massachusetts, it's been really great because I can bring wine to a market and, and New York too. These are wines, many of the, I think almost every single wine that I import has never been outside of Italy. Is that true? Yeah. So I mean, there might be like one or two that for one time or another got shipped over to like California or something. But for all intents and purposes, the whole, the portfolio is 100% new. So that's what makes it even great down here. Because you're not really looking to pick up what falls off the back end of some other, no, somebody else's book. Not at all. You're looking for the unique find that you can introduce. Absolutely. Absolutely. To me, it's about the importing branch of my life is very much um, about starting with that idea of hearing the story of the producer, you know, whether it's an old friend that I had, which none of them are actually, because those guys are, they don't have enough wine to sell in the first place. Um, the importing side for me is about taking uh, basically the bottle of wine uh, and the story from the producer, you know, bringing into a market that's really eager to, to, to listen and taste and try it. And then, you know, carrying that through, having an outlet like the Bottega um, is also really great because um, at the end of the week, if I have some interesting new wines, um, I can showcase them at the Bottega, you know, and, and get that story all the way from, you know, the vineyard down to the last person trying it. And um, Which sometimes people can't do because in certain markets, unlike yeah. Mass, you can't have multiple licenses. So yeah, you can't have multiple licenses. He, here, it would be harder for right. an importer to actually go to Italy, find right. something, then watch it all the way through to the final right, sale. Right, right, And see, like, kind of complete that whole chain and get yeah. feedback from both sides. Yeah. Which is kind of a unique thing I think so. Do. I think it's really unique. And I feel like, um, you know, obviously the Bottega is not the only outlet of for the importing. But it's an important voice for what I want to do. You know, I want to help. Um, and they support you back. They definitely do. You know, I mean, they're, it's, uh, you know, now being a co-owner at the shop um, with Carrie is, is fantastic, you know. Um, and we, we, we're not hoarding the wines that are imported, right? We're, we're really trying to share them, but we're also trying to put them in the right people's hands and let them drink them and enjoy them. So you want to spread it out to get market awareness, but you also want that market to build and not be like, yeah, I don't know what's up with that weird wine yeah, that's yeah. in the corner. It's not selling. That's exactly, that kind of that's exactly like what I, what I like to do. It's, it's a little small voice to help bring that out to the people. Um, it's been really exciting. You know, importing is... I think it's really what I was supposed to do. I really enjoy it. You know, I just, uh, I think it's great. Do you think that the foundation of small book importing has really moved from brand to story? Like it's this triumph of story over brand in the market? I think that's a great way to think about it. You know, we, 
at the shop, this kind of like little thing we used to say is that we're like talking about real wine and real people and real stories. And, you know, we'd say that amongst ourselves, like joking that it's our kind of like made up like little saying, you know, because we don't have corporate goals and stuff. We're just there on the ground doing what feels good. And to me, you know, the selection of trial portfolio is just that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a deeper understanding. It's a, I'm going to go get my, my feet on the ground in Italy, France, wherever it be, and know that story and be able to convey it in a really interesting way. So in some ways, you know, the brand, if anything, is the story, you know, and there's no, it's not, it's not just about, uh, just about these numbers or units of boxes and stuff. And how is that portfolio based and what's it like at the moment? It's, um, so it's, basically all Italian, like I said, and I really got inspired um, by a producer I, I found a couple years ago um, in Italy. It was a friend of a producer of mine. And um, this guy is making these amazing Sicilian wines. And I tasted the wines with him and he was really shy about them. You know, he had two wines on his little table and um, I said, wow, these are really amazing. And then he started pulling bottles up from behind with no labels on them. And I said, that guy's onto something, you know, really onto something. And um, it was right in my wheelhouse, like this kind of um, gregarious Sicilian guy, hardworking, solo kind of winemaker that had a big vision for what he wanted to do. And, um, and basically that was the, the, the moment where I said, I got to do this right now. Like, this is the moment I have to get it all together and start, you know? And um, that producer was really, that was, that was a really important producer for me, La Maresca. And he's a producer that doesn't, it's still not quite as diffused as it will yet because he does have very small amounts of wine. He's a, he's a long-term kind of guy for me. But at the same time, Sicily as a market has been kind of growing in the United States for fine wine. Like there's more and more interest every for sure. year. Yeah, yeah. So. and I was really inspired by a lot of the other Sicilian wines coming to the market. Obviously, Occupinti in some ways really broke ground, you know, showed there's this whole other side of Sicilian wine out there. Cause, of course, has always always done really great work. Um, Frank Cornelison, major player, um, really inspirational guy, friend of mine, major friend of La Maresca. Those guys are... Um, great friends and, uh, and, and, you know, cohorts. And, um, and then from there, I, you know, went after the things that I find a lot of um, personal taste for, mm -hmm. Lombrusco. Mm -hmm. Love Lombrusco. Is it, is the market I'm going to have a lot of Lombrusco. Building? Yeah. I love it. It's, to me, I love Lombrusco so much that I would be totally happy to work with like 10 different Lombrusco producers, as long as they're making really awesome Lombrusco. And what draws you to that? Simplicity. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's totally... It's against the grain in a lot of way, because, you know, in many markets, even to this day, if you get out of our little bubble that we live in, like uh, amongst these great small wine shops in New York or in Boston, um, people still think Lombrusco is junk. Mm -hmm. You know, you hand a bottle of Lombrusco to the passerby and they go, no, no, I don't drink that fizzy cola stuff, you know. Um, so it also, but when I see people taste great sparkling red wine, they really love it. And they, they go, this is something unique. They're light and fresh and really easy to drink with food. I think it's going to be, you know, I think it'll be something people really get more and more into. Because as people are in, more into uh, lighter, fresh reds, mm -hmm. the bubbles in Lambrusco can actually lead more into that that feeling of freshness. So Absolutely. It seems to be where people are going and oh, then yeah. it's even more extended with the idea just by the nature of the production. Absolutely. You know, and you're talking about generally... Um, 
northern central Italian wines that have 11, 11 and a half, 12 maximum-ish percent alcohol. So you could drink bottle after bottle of Lambrusco around a table of pizza and friends. And that's what I love. That that to me is the story of like getting that stuff on the table, you know, is really important to me. So a part of everyday life. That everyday you life. You can just crack yeah. with pizza Even or sandwich. The best sandwich. Lambruscos out there are going to be 20 bucks or under, right? You know, I mean, the really good ones are, are let's say 25 just to be generous. But um, you can drink great Lambrusco made by great people for not too much money. And people enjoy that conviviality kind of moment with Lambrusco. It makes you smile having these bubbles. And um, yeah, to me, the Lambrusco is a real, another, if Sicily's like the the central core of what I really love and want to like uh, spend a lot of time learning more about that because it's such an interesting zone, Lambrusco to me is the the fun, like lighthearted side. And I've also started working with a really another amazing producer in Umbria. So I kind of going back to Tuscany and Umbria because it's a place start. where I got my start and spending time finding amazing producers um, that are very old fashioned. Some of my original favorite wine memories, the moments where they were like, that's a great bottle, Palo Bea, you know, Capolano, things like that. Hardcore traditionalists. And I'm working with a great producer in Umbria now that I think is like poised to be something like that. Um, Do you find yourself drawn to the same characteristics in a producer that you see around you in New England? Like the guy who keeps his head down and works hard, doesn't have a big microphone, doesn't get a lot of press. Yeah. Uh, offers more value because when I go get a sandwich in Boston, it's three dollars cheaper than yeah. New York, and it's a good sandwich. Kind of keeps to those core values of over delivering through hard work and kind of that classic New England thing. Do you find that, but extended into different cultures? It's funny that that I I probably now that you're saying that that's probably I, I feel like in many ways I'm, I'm a New England person, and it's probably been part of my nature without me thinking about that. It's a, it's it's something that I strive for in the shop where it's like, oh, this is a great $18, $15 bottle of wine that tastes like it's 25, 30 bucks. And, um, and you know, frankly, it could be 25, 30 bucks, but we're not gonna do that, you know? And I do think there's something like that. And the people that I end up working with, whether it's uh, my distributors or my people that work in the ground in the restaurants, like I think they wanna deliver that kind of thing too. And that's why I think we work really well together. And I think that's also interesting to bring into markets like, um, you know, like New York, because you're offering something that's, you know, something very humbly and kind of simple, simplistic, and not just looking for flashbangs. It's, you know? it's working class values yeah, in, yeah, a, yeah. in a market that maybe is looking for more of those. Right, right. And I think that that's important as I go forward looking for, you know, tracking down great new producers. Um, I'm always looking for that person I can have a relationship with that are, you know, we're talking the same language, even though it's Italian, <laughs> you know, so. And what did you bring uh, with us today uh, to try? What do you got so here? So this is, this is, this is interesting. This is um, a producer named Montemolino. Okay. They're in the northernmost cusp of Umbria, right around Lake Trasimeno. And um, this was a, this is a really interesting little find. Um, this was a place where I spent a lot of time riding my bike and around the lake. It's a really low lying lake. And all around, it's a wine region. And I don't think, I don't know if anyone else actually imports wine from this region. It's really unknown. But it's um, classic kind of hybrid ideas of what you have in central Italy. You know, this is uh, grown on the lakes of, uh, or the banks of this this lake, and it's all Gricchetto. And it's this like 70 plus year old woman named Margaret that makes the wine, like literally in their basement with, um, and she's actually a German expat. 
that's been living in Italy for longer than she actually lived in Germany. And she makes these wines in such an old fashioned way. And I was just, I tasted it the first time. I was like, that's brilliant. It's 11.5% alcohol Grecchetto from Umbria. Is low alcohol important to you? Yeah. You want to like be able to enjoy I'm not afraid of alcohol, but, yeah. I, but I like finding wines that run that line where there's uh, freshness to the wine. You know, I can handle wines that have ripeness to them because they should embody that. They, you know, um, ripeness can be really key to balancing a wine. You know, they're not looking for unripe things just for the nature of having 11.5% alcohol wine. It's just the way that this producer tends to have their wine. You know, there's so much, I find so many Grecchettos from Umbria to be like handled in pushed towards Chardonnay. Right. We're like, oh, we can, we can turn that into Chardonnay. A little oak here, a little mallow there. Yeah, yeah. And this is like, I don't even know if it does mallow or not. I couldn't tell you because I don't, that's not, not really a question. That's I not part of the it's question. It's not always my, I'm not, the technicalities sometimes aren't what I'm always about. I want to taste it, want to drink it, want to eat it with the people that made it, some salami, and then bring it home and show people how much I think it's good. Why don't you walk us through the taste on this one? What would you be pairing this up with uh, if you were to have it at home with some food? I think this wine always has a lot of um, salinity. It's kind of semi-aromatic style white wine. Um, I think it has, uh, yeah, a salinity that would go good with um, potato chips. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, the stuff that they eat right on the river there besides potato chips is a lot of like light um, grilled fish, light sometimes, you know, fried fish. They have these these like river fish, uh, lake fish. And so um, they're delicate, but they have a little bit of earthiness to them. And I think a white wine like this just goes really well with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, to me, I also pitch this to someone that's like, you know, drink anything else except Pinot Grigio because it's just a wonderful little simple wine and it has that savory element that I like about Italian white wine. A little herbal, a little savory, you know, freshness to it. Is it sometimes important to look for someone who's in a way not ambitious at the producer level? I deal with people that are on, on every kind of shade of that level of gray, right? You know, I have people that are quite ambitious. They understand the wine world and, um, that's like the time when it's important for us to know we're both doing our jobs. You know, he, their job is to make amazing wine. My job is to take it to the market and really, you know, show it to people and make sure they love it. These people here, I mean, they and uh, several other people, completely reluctant to sell their wine. They almost have no reason to. They, who's this guy that comes across the world, wants to buy a little amount of wine, and um, why would they buy my wine? You know, why is this better than the stuff from the co-op down the street. Sometimes uh, the old Italian mentality can really hit with that. So they're not ambitious except in their own work, except in the fact that that producer, I think is sitting there making really fun little wine and not asking much for it. You know, just being like, this is, this is it. This is our table wine. I, you know, I give it to my guests at my little restaurant down the road and that's it. Have you been surprised at times by the reception when you get back to Massachusetts? Have some things taken off more than you thought and some things been more re reluctant to, to take off? I've been really, I think I've been really fortunate. You know, I've had amazing response beyond, well beyond what I thought we were going to in the first year. You know, working with three producers in the first year, gung-ho, um, you know, not a lot of money in my pocket, just going to do it, you know, and um then it just went, the reception was massive, you know, both in, in New York, 
right out the door. It was really great. Um, Massachusetts, same thing. You know, then then I evolved small small amount up in Vermont. Came along later in the year, which was great. You know, that's another little outlet. Again, a little tie back to my origins up there. I really love Vermont still. So that that made a lot of sense. But you know, this year we're going to go from working with three producers to like thirteen. And, um, and then, and then I think I'm going to kind of keep it there for a while and really focus on those guys. Is that a lot for one guy to have 13 producers to tell the story of? I think so. You know, luckily, um, luckily I work with some great people, you know, that, that are, that are really important to help share that story. And, um, but yeah, that's, that's what I do. You know, that's what I'm excited about. I can't wait to share, share those stories and bring those wines in and show, show the folks that I work with, um, that these are these are really interesting. Do you do you think that the market is embracing you more because it needs alternative and new stories? Like it can't just keep saying can't the same cash thing. the same stories all the time, you know. And um, but at the same time, I think it's important to be um, always. Uh, you can't you you don't want to in the long run be one of those guys that's telling the stories the same ones a long time or that people are tired of. So I think that it's. You know, yes, being a guy that's just starting, I'm very enthusiastic about the prospects that I have working with this news producers. But I also, you know, this is going to be my career and I don't want to like turn around 10 years and be like, boy, I really screwed all that up. You know, and I lost my faith in this little Montemolino producer and forgot about him. You know, I really want to continue telling the stories. Um, and, and what's really cool is every producer is always tweaking something, tinkering with it. You know, they've got something new. They've got something interesting. And that, that to me keeps it keeps it fresh for the long term, you know, just like the other great small importers that have now grown to these medium, large-ish sizes. I'm still inspired by them. Do you think there's a level where, um, you know, Boston can be a city where people quickly or over a few years quickly come to grips with what is offered there and then start to complain about, hey, there's not enough restaurants. I wish it was somewhere else. Easy trap to fall into. I've met all these people before. It's the same small scene. Do you think that being an importer is a great way of kind of getting out of that and being like, yeah, now I'm in Italy and I'm going to bring it back to that home base? Right. I actually think that's, that's really a part of it. You know, it's, it's going beyond not just the four walls of a great wine shop, but going beyond the constraints of five, 10 great restaurants that are on your side that are really like feeling what you're doing um, and being able to have a different, you know, different life. You know I mean? When, when I pick up and go to Italy in March or April, whatever it is to, you know, that's my whirlwind trip. That's like three weeks on the ground, seeing the people you, and then you come back very much ready to go to those people that are a little bit jaded you know, in the Boston wine market, it's very easy for people to just become, you know, whatever, we'll sell the same old stuff and like pay the bills. Like you said, keep your head down, keep going. More and more though, I'm seeing it come it come up. It's, it's, it's focusing. People are getting more and more focused. Um, new wine bars are opening. New shops are opening. Restaurants are fine tuning what they're doing and not just settling in. There's still always going to be that level of like kind of settling in and not doing you know, anything special, but, um, luckily I don't, you know, really focus on those people as they're not, they're not who I need to go see. That's not your crew. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that being a retail buyer as well as an importer allows you to kind of stay fresh on what's out there and kind of stay cosmopolitan? I think it's huge. Tasting through all the different books as opposed to just kind of like falling into your own book and being like, I don't know what's going on out there. I think that's probably one of the major downfalls to some of the small and medium size importers that are independent in Massachusetts, especially in Massachusetts and probably in other markets even, is that you get so 
narrow into what you're tasting and you only taste your book all the time and you know you're still excited about it but you can't get excited about that $13 Sauvignon Blanc every week and on the retail side yeah I mean I know my portfolio inside and out obviously but yeah I mean I love having all those things I know I think I know the what's in the market well because I'm still seeking those wines out boy, I still want to bring in all those great Dresner wines or like Zeb's wines or, you know, got to have those. And does it kind of allow you also to kind of know what the competition is like? You can be like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, this is just not going to fly if yeah. someone could get that. So I'm not going to bring that in. Yeah, absolutely. On the on the, on the, on the other hand, you, you kind of know which battles to choose, um, or at least I'm learning that, you know, and you have to know, um, you got to have a vision, I think, where your wines are going to go before you buy them as an importer. Is that key to kind I of think be able to visualize I the think final so. thing? Yeah, you gotta. I to me, it's it's some. If I'm standing out of Prusa and they've got 600 bottles of wine for the year, and it's kind of expensive, you gotta know, boy, you know, these people will probably be really into this and this, and you gotta envision that. And even if it doesn't go well that way, you've gotta at least have this idea, I think, and that allows me to look at the market as a landscape having had, you know, having tasted in the, in the shop every day or, you know, all week. And, um, and then being able to turn around and go get on the ground and import some wine that like is going to be a little bit different, you know? And so that, that has been, I think, a major asset. Do you find that it's a different kind of customer that is attracted to your wines than maybe other wines? Like, is there an age thing involved or? It's really interesting because I think that I think that for all these kind of like avant-garde wines that are out there that are great and affordable, Van de Soif, um, French style, even some Italian ones, um, in many ways, I've always been really surprised, especially in my little bubble um, in Boston, that, um, you know, it's not necessarily, and maybe I'm just kind of isolated in some ways, but it's not necessarily these cool kids going out and like, picking up these wines, it's actually a little bit older crowd that like wants to taste something new. I mean, I have these great, great customer friends of mine that are both customers of the shop and love the wines I import. And, um, and I think it's one of those things where you see their palates lining up with people that have tasted a lot of stuff. They want something new and they also know what they're looking for. You know, they're looking for not super heavy Italian white wine. They're looking for something really savory and funky from Umbria or Sicily, you know, they're also looking for something bright and fresh and crisp from Sicily at the same time. And um, I think the clientele's age is is hard to nail down. I've never been like, oh, this is great for like the 20-something set and this is great for the 50-something set. But um, it's surprising. I think there's like, uh, I think that people are very much, um, my my general customers that I know are, um, are not just young hipsters. You know what I mean? Looking for the next cool smiley face wine, you know, out there. So as wine has gotten more expensive and the the kind of ceiling keeps raising, is uh, one of the more important segments going back to the bottom of the market and kind of competing with the kind of very commercial brands at an artisanal level at a price point that is commensurate? It seems very important sometimes to do that. I also don't ever want to buy a wine to fit a price point. Got it. I'd rather find a wine that I really love and once I find that wine, I'm kind of going to go after it at whatever price point it's offered. Mm-hmm. And it ha- if it happens to be a less expensive wine that we can move a couple pallets of every few months, 
great. You know, if it's a it's a little banger that like is honestly made and delicious, I will have probably found it before I knew. I wasn't going, boy, I need to go find these like $15 wines now and fill my book up with that stuff. I think that's another thing that I've watched other importers in, you know, in town and in the country do. They go, oh, I've got these kind of keystone producers. Now I got to fill it out with some stuff I can actually sell. And um, I'd rather... I'd rather stay on a course that's like maybe a bit riskier and, and offer and sometimes can be a lot more money on the table and, and riskier. But, but at the same time, that's, that's the way I'd rather do it. If someone were on the precipice of getting into wine and then maybe getting into import, what mm-hmm. would you say to that person? I'd say just do it. Mm-hmm. I'd say just jump in and be highly focused on... Being having a complete kind of perspective is something I think is really important. I think starting, if I look back on my relatively short time in the wine sector, wine world, it started with a guy that didn't know a lot about wine that was just happy to be amongst it. And then came into a place that was special and helped grow something into what I think is something really on on the upswing and, and doing well by Bottega. And then finding my own individual part of it, which is the you know, that's my slice of the wine world is importing. This is where I'm going to bring my my own personal taste and vision to the table. And if I was going to see someone that was anywhere along those things, I'd try to expose them to the whole picture at, at once and not just say, yeah, go be a wine importer because anyone can do that. You know, it's just moving boxes and being good salesmen. It's not. And I also don't think that you can um, do some of those things without a little bit of background in certain places people open shops without any experience and they don't really go anywhere it's like you have to not necessarily pay your dues but be heads up and smart and like look for what's out there and i'd say yeah go for it it's it's a fun world to be in you find it's it's not that uh not there aren't that many barriers as long as you really are into it it's not super easy you know i mean i'll say that the barriers uh, include um i've had to learn a lot of patience with the like federal systems importing wine you know there's a lot of lag time um so you you have to you have to learn those kind of parts of it but no i mean um it's not the hardest thing in the world it's not brain surgery here but it's also something you have to be the right fit for in some ways um i think and um you get some get yourself a vision some company background some 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 products and some great wines and people around you and you can do it how is social media uh, involved in gaining visibility for you? It's a great question because I'm kind of an, the ultimate anti-social media guy, but I've also learned that it can be a very useful tool if you use it with your own personality. You know, I remember we, <laughs> at the shop specifically, uh, we, had a, we had a moment where it's like, you know, we have a kind of good website. We have kind of a Facebook page. We have no Twitter. And uh, Carrie was like, you know, you got all the quips, so just do Twitter. And I said, you know what? I'll do that. That sounds fine. And I didn't know anything about it, you know, and just had to start getting into it. And I found that Twitter became really interesting to just talk to, just have a little dialogue with people. And it connects you for a minute. And yet it does connect you pretty well. In, in this kind of wine world, I think the wine trade and social media can go really well um, in some ways and also be really clowny and not so interesting in other ways. I don't have a Facebook and I don't, you know, and I, I work, uh, I'm trying to learn what Facebook's all about in terms of the wine world. But um, 
I, I'm much more of, I'd rather send a newsletter personally because you can, you can have a conversation in a page and maybe show a picture and do it in a little bit more. If you want to be here and see this kind of way, then you can see it. And if you, if you're just spitting stuff out into the Twitter world, then, you know, sometimes that gets lost, but I'll say that I've made some great friends and connections, both uh, in the importing side and in the wine bottega side um, through, through social media. I won't say it's like changing the game, but it's uh, helping, it's helping. And you've been around a few bottles in your day. Yeah. What's your favorite drinking story? Jeez, that's crazy. Um, <laughs> uh, well, uh, I think to one of my fondest memories um, of drinking heavily was a few years ago. Um, this is again, kind of at the moment when the when I at the shop was really into like digging up great wines, bringing them in and taking that role on. And I said, you know, we're going to, we're going to have like these crazy parties down in Chinatown. And um, I basically took it upon myself to like gather every bottle, every crew Beaujolais that existed both in the market and outside the market. I came down here, grabbed a couple of bottles that weren't available. We tasted every 10 crew Beaujolais plus, you know, a lot of other stuff. And, um, it was an intense, you know, and what was really cool about it was people actually heard about it too. We had like Zev came up for it, Zev Ravine came up for it. Um, and it was just this moment where it was totally crazy, but the whole Boston community was there. You know, I love drinking with, you know, we don't, one of the other things I like is that we were all drinking with people that were like competitors and, you know, sales reps and, you know, and, and we were all in that same room drinking magnums of Gamay and eating a big piece of cheese. And it was a moment when I was like, this is great, you know, and I don't remember the rest, but it was great. You know, that, that to me was a fun time and something pivotal too. Matteo Molo of Selection Natural and the Wine Bottega in Boston. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me, Levy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.